to the choir master, according to Much Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. How do we sing Psalm 9 as Christians? Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Well, if you have ever been afflicted, if you have ever suffered because of, of someone who was better connected, better able to manipulate the system, then you will know how to sing Psalm 9 and, and 10. Actually, Psalms 9 and 10 were seemed originally to have been one psalm. Uh, they've been divided in the, in, in the Hebrew text into two, but uh, it's actually one big uh, acrostic in Hebrew. Uh, so that if, in, if, if they were originally two, two psalms, they were written to be sung together because the acrostic continues through both psalms. Uh, but book one of the Psalter sees David and his sons on the throne. So these, these psalms here that we're going through in book one see the world in a sense as it should be. And, and the laments and complaints focus on disruptions within the world as it should be. Because the picture is the king is on the throne. David, his sons. God has established his kingdom. Things have, have been set up the way they should be. Uh, the problem is that things still aren't the way they should be. David was supposed to fulfill all that Israel failed to do and to be. And, of course, part of the way that we sing these songs is because the son of David, our Lord Jesus, is sitting on the throne. So in one sense, the world now is the way it should be. 
And yet, as Hebrews 2 says, but we don't yet see everything under his feet. Things aren't yet the way they should be. In other words, we live very much in book one of the Psalms. I mean, now, you'll, you'll be familiar with that every time we go through any part of the Old Testament, I'm like, huh, this is a lot like where we are. I mean, you think about, it's like, we are very much like in slavery in Egypt. We are very much in the wilderness. We are... Because there's a way in which the, everything that Christ has done has fulfilled every part of the Old Testament. So not surprisingly, we see and hear echoes in our lives of every part of the story. And that's why we can sing the Psalms of Book 1 very much the way Hebrews 2 teaches us to sing them. Like we saw last week from Psalm 8. Because we don't yet see everything under his feet. Uh, it's been a little while since we had sung Psalms 1 and 2, so I wanted to weave them both into the service today because our psalm of response in Psalm 2 speaks of the Son of God, the, the Davidic King, the, the Messiah, who is the heir of all things. And Psalm 2 closed with that call, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so during Advent, we sang Psalms 3 through 7, songs of, of refuge and now we'll see that Psalms 9, really 9 through 20, continue these same themes of seeking refuge. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him because we are the ones who seek refuge in our Lord Jesus Christ. What we have in Old Testament Israel was a, a picture of the kingdom of God, a picture of the new creation. And you can see how... Psalm 2, the end of Psalm 2 there, as it speaks of, of the son of David inheriting all the nations. This is, this is the promise that God gave to David. This is the promise that God gave to, well, now we see, to Jesus. And this is where, as we consider what it means for us to sing Psalm 9, these psalms in the first part of the Psalter are all building off of Psalm 2, saying, this is the promise. This is the way things should be. This is what God has established. And so the question then becomes, well, okay, but I'm not seeing it yet. And that's where our New Testament lesson from Hebrews 2 perhaps helps orient us. So here are the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. David sees by faith that the kingdom of God was being restored. He saw a man, the son of man, sitting on the throne in the midst of the promised land. And so he, was, he sees in the Psalms the beginning of the fulfillment of what God had promised to Adam, what God had promised to Abraham, what God had promised to Moses. And now in David was bringing it to, to its initial fulfillment. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, we sang last week. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength. I mean, Israel as a whole was a puny and feeble nation. And yet, because the Lord, the God of heaven and earth dwells here, because he has put all things under the feet of the son of David, this stops the mouths of the wicked. And indeed, that's what Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 2, that in Jesus Christ, what was spoken by faith in Psalm 8 has begun to come to pass. And sure, we do not yet see everything subject to him, but we see him. We see Jesus, who was made for a while lower than the angels, but now has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? Well, man is no longer Adam. Man is no longer the rebel and the cursed one. Man is now Jesus Christ. Man is now the blessed one, the one who has been made perfect through suffering. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor as the second and indeed the last Adam, the one who restores humanity to fellowship with God. And that vision of the king as the son of man, as the son of David, is at the heart of Psalms 9 and 10. Uh, Psalm 9 and 10 has a single title. It's to the choir master, according to Mut Laban, a psalm of David. Now, it says Mut Laban uh, partly because there's, there's debate among commentators as to what it means, so they just leave it in Hebrew. <laughs> uh, but Mut Laban means death to a son. And many have seen, hmm, death to a son. David had a son who died. In fact, this is, uh, we, we saw 
already in these early psalms, references to Absalom's rebellion. Absalom, David's son, had rebelled against his father and drove David out of Jerusalem. And then Absalom died in that resulting battle. Now, some might say, well, but Psalm 9 is, or is talking about the nations. Absalom's rebellion was an internal rebellion. Well, but Psalms 9 and 10 go together. And Psalm 10 will talk about what happens when Israel acts like the nations. And for that matter, Absalom's grandfather was Talmai, the king of Geshur. And when Absalom had fled from, from his father after the, the killing of Amnon, uh, Absalom went to go hang out with his grandfather. So is there actually foreign support? Are the nations involved in this? Who knows? But whether they did or not, when the people of God rebel against the Lord's anointed, then they are acting very much like the nations. And that's very much at the heart of Psalms 9 and 10 when you see them together. And it's, it's not just you know, when, you know, sort of when Christians rebel against Christ, they're acting like pagans. It's not, it's not just those people over there. It's not other churches over there. It's us. I mean, this was David's son. This was my daughter. And when I don't repent and believe the gospel, this is me. When we act like the nations, we are not acting like God's people. Remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. How does the book of Acts talk about this? The apostles say, oh, that was the chief priests. Wait, but Psalm 2 said nations, Gentiles. Oh no, but when the chief priests are in rebellion against God, they're acting like Gentiles. They're acting like the nations of Psalm 2. Jews and Gentiles together joined against Jesus. And this pattern explains why Psalms 9 and 10 fit together so well. Uh, as I mentioned already, that this is one acrostic poem. The first letter of each verse comes from a, or a stanza, comes from a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's the fact that the whole thing ties together as one poem suggests that it was originally one. Also, from Psalm 3 through Psalm 41, every psalm in Book 1 has a title, except Psalm 10. Psalm 10 doesn't have a title. Why not? Well, probably it was originally part of Psalm 9. And also, the poem moves seamlessly through the transition between Psalms 9 and 10, applying the same set of themes from the nations in Psalm 9 to wicked Israelites in Psalm 10. Um, and for that matter, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, includes both psalms as one in the Greek version of the Psalter, suggesting that as late as the 2nd century BC, they were still viewed as one. So then the question becomes, why did they get divided? That's a good question. Uh, but the title, According to the Death of a Son, suggests that Absalom and his fellow conspirators are acting like the nations, this is in, in their, essentially, their apostasy from Israel as they refuse to, to follow the Lord's anointed, the, the, uh, the King David. But my way of, of handling this two-part psalm will be to preach a two-part sermon. So this morning we're just going to look at the Psalm 9 portion of the text, and then next week we'll look at the Psalm 10 portion of the text. 
And I'm also happy to say that the Trinity Psalter hymnal accepted our recommendation and used the same tune for both Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. So there'll be a, an echo in your, in your minds as you're singing Psalm 10 next week that will be the same tune that we sing with Psalm 9 this week. But part of what David is doing in this psalm is pointing to the fact that his afflictions are a present reality. So this is partly a matter of how do we sing about troubles when we're in the middle of the troubles? Notice how Psalm 9 opens with a wholehearted thanksgiving to God. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. If you think about what we read when we read Psalm 9, David's not in a great spot right now. Things are not going well. And yet he begins by giving thanks. Paul will talk about this in terms of rejoice, brothers. I say to you again, rejoice. Even, even in the midst of trials, we, may, we can rejoice in the midst of trials, not because we're so happy that we're going through the trials, but because of the God whom we worship. We know his presence even in the midst of our troubles. We know that the way to, the, to glory is the way of the cross. It's the same point we saw in Hebrews 2. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The glorious crown only comes through the way of suffering and death. And so in Psalm 9, King David says, I will give thanks, I will be glad, I will sing praise. And as the king declares the wonderful deeds of the Lord, all Israel is drawn into his pro- proclamation. This is as, as Jesus sings praise, we are drawn into his song. When the king gives thanks to God, he draws us into the celebration of God's mercy. Jesus draws you into his gratitude to the Father. This is, this is what David was doing with Israel. This is what Jesus does with us. That we are drawn into his Thanks, because God has heard him and raised him up, and God has seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. And so as we consider what it means to to be thankful in the midst of our own afflictions, remember, remember Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that as he rejoices because God has heard him, so we rejoice because God has heard us. I would just encourage you in your prayers even even when you're in the midst of troubles make it a habit to thank god perhaps even especially when you're in the midst of troubles thank god for what he has done and what he will do i think gratitude is something we're not necessarily all that good at but it's important to be thankful to be grateful to God for what he has done. And then when we are grateful to God for what he has done, part of what happens is we start then also showing more gratitude to others. It's something that's important. And I just, as I, as I think about sort of how do I, the way this, I just, I want to say thank you to you as a congregation, but especially today, thank you to the Sunday school teachers. Thank you for your labors in teaching our children, the, the ways of, of the Lord. So, thank you, Molly. 
Thank you, William and Sally and Mark. And thank you, Betty and Jamie and Elizabeth and Jacob and Hugh and Carrie and others who have, who have taught and helped over the years. Because as you teach our children the wondrous deeds of the Lord, as you teach them, you are showing them that same gratitude to, of what, to, to express that gratitude of what God has done. And how, how often do we recount his wonderful deeds? I mean, yes, we sing his praise on Sunday morning, and that's an important start. But how does that then fuel and drive our daily life? How do we sing praise to God, whether it's snatches of songs that, you, that, that come into your mind, or prayers giving thanks to God daily in the way for what he has done? And in verses 3 to 6, David explains why he gives thanks to God. He, he starts with God's justice. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. It's rather poignant to reflect on the fact that the song is titled, Death of a Son. Perhaps it's why David grieved so much when Absalom died. He knew that God would destroy those who rise up against the Lord's anointed. And he grieved that it was his own son who stumbled and perished before God's presence. We heard in Psalm 7 that if a man does not repent, if he does not turn back, then God will wet his sword. God will bring judgment upon his foes. That that theme of turning is crucial in this opening series of Psalms. As we saw in Psalm 6, if, if God does not turn his face toward us, then we are doomed. If God doesn't do something, we're, we're done for. And if man does not turn toward God, Psalm 7, then he is doomed. And here, when my enemies do turn, they stumble and perish because their turning is not a turning to God in repentance. Their turning is a turning away from God, and so they stumble and fall. And God sits on his throne, verse 4, giving righteous judgment Just as David had said in Psalm 7, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. When God returns to his heavenly throne, then justice comes to all the earth. As Psalm 9 continues in verses 5 and 6, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. How many nations have perished from the face of the earth? Where now are the Hittites? Or the great civilization of the Incas? Or the Potawatomi, for that matter? Or the Ottoman Empire was a major world power a century ago. All of them have perished. But not only do the wicked perish, even the memory of them perishes. God blots out their name forever. In one sense, the ones I've just named haven't quite been forgotten entirely. But what about the the Indus Valley civilization of India? Are you familiar with that one? Massive cities. Actually, they they wrote texts, lots of texts. We have lots. Unfortunately, we can't translate any of them. So... It's a great civilization from the same time as ancient Egypt and and ancient Babylon. The the reason why you don't know much about it is because nobody does. We have these massive cities that they built, and we have these texts that they wrote, but we can't read them. 
so we have no idea what they were doing. Their name has been forgotten. Kings left no trace in the history books. And David says that God has done this to his enemies, to those who oppose his kingdom, that in the end they are forgotten. Maybe they remembered for a little while, but then they fade and perish. But the Lord sits enthroned forever, verse 7. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Because God is faithful to David, therefore we may have confidence that God will be faithful to all the earth. And you can see the David and Israel theme connecting to Christ and his church. Because God is faithful to Jesus, because God has judged Jesus justly, therefore we may have confidence in him because we have been united to the justified one. Notice how the psalmist does this. In verse 4, the emphasis was on how God has maintained my just cause, David's. And then in verses 7 to 8, the focus broadens to how God judges the world with righteousness because God judges David rightly. And when you see righteousness and justice side by side like this, the idea is that righteousness refers to how one organizes one's community. And justice has to do with how you decide particular cases. To, to organize things righteously. That it's, it sets up the, the sort of the system is well, is well ordered. But in a well ordered system, there's still no guarantee that somebody does justice in any particular case. And so if you have a well ordered system, that's a good thing, righteousness. But, the, but justice means, and then also deciding particular cases justly. God's throne has been established for justice. He renders just and true verdicts And he judges the world with righteousness. He has organized things in a way that is right and fair. And that's something that I just reflected on in the pastoral notes this week, that when you live the way that Jesus taught us, life is better than when you don't. It's not saying that everything goes well, but it's simply saying that it goes better than it would have if you you did things the other way. Because... When we live the way God tells us, when we live the way Jesus has laid out for us, then we are living in tune with him and with those around us as best we are able, obviously, (laughs) as best we are able, because we're also fallen creatures living in a fallen world. But when you look around, it's pretty obvious that things are not always right and fair. And indeed, this is where David turns in verses 9 and 10, because The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This theme of refuge that we've been seeing in the first part of the Psalter is is everywhere through these songs. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. The oppressed of verse 9, or the afflicted of verse 12, the, the needy and the poor in verse 18. Now, when you think of these words, when you think of the poor, who do you think of? Most of us in sort of middle, upper class worlds tend to think of poverty in terms of material lack, so that poor people are those who lack stuff. But Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert have pointed out that poor people themselves rarely talk in terms of material resources. Rather, they tend to describe poverty in terms of shame, helplessness, or hopelessness. 
Now, that's not particularly a modern insight. Listen to the words the psalmist uses to describe these people. The oppressed, those who are crushed by others. The afflicted, those who are humiliated. The needy, okay, lack of material goods. The poor, actually the same word as afflicted. Those who are humiliated. Those who have no help. In our early years of marriage, as I was a graduate student, we never made more than $20,000 a year for the first five years of our married life. And yes, if you, do, if you sort of calculate that out, then we had, we had three kids and a fourth was on the way. <laughs> and in material terms, we were way below the poverty line. But we were not poor. We were not needy or afflicted. I mean, nothing particularly bad happened to us in those years. But if something had, we had resources, we had connections, we always would have been provided for, somebody would have been been there for us. If you want to know who are the poor in our community, well, look at the Hispanic couple who went to one county office where I, I was one day and they were trying to take care of some matter and the clerk looked at the document in their hands and said simply, this is the wrong office. When the Hispanic couple asked what they should do, her only response was, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. She didn't tell them where the right office was. They were the afflicted. They had no one to help them in the middle of their trouble. They were embarrassed and helpless and pretty quickly hopeless. And if they didn't resolve that matter, they would wind up losing out financially as well. Their, whatever material resources they had were going to be... I don't know how much they... For all I know, they may have, been, they may have had lots of material resources. But because there was nobody who was willing to help, they were in trouble and in danger of losing everything. David gives thanks to God that those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is a refuge, a fortress, a stronghold for the oppressed. And so those who worship this God should imitate his care for the oppressed. And so Jesus, the son of David, calls us in verses 11 and 12, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. What are the deeds? For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Because God is faithful to David and David's son, because God brings justice to all the earth, because he does justice to his king, we sing praises to the Lord because the Lord avenges the afflicted. And this is a theme we've already seen in Psalms 3, 6, and 7. It's, it's right to want vengeance. Just, just be clear. Vengeance is not a bad thing. Vengeance goes bad when we take it on ourselves. And that's why God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. The problem is not that vengeance is bad. The problem is that we are bad at vengeance. That's what, if vengeance was bad, then, then God would not say vengeance is mine. Vengeance is not bad. The problem is we are bad at vengeance. And David tells Israel, that the Lord, the one who avenges blood, is mindful of the poor. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. All these words and ideas will come back in Psalm 10, as we'll see next week. You know, the oppressed in the times of trouble, the one, the one who does not forget the afflicted. 
indeed, the concluding plea, Arise, O Lord, in verse 19, will also come back in chapter 10. So we join the king in giving thanks to God for his wondrous deeds in salvation history and in protecting those who are afflicted. And we also echo the king's cry to God when we are troubled. Because we see that, oh, while he's giving thanks to God for God's great deeds, he's in the middle of being afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord, verse 13. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so David says, See my affliction. It might seem odd that David would classify himself among the poor, the afflicted. He's the king of Israel. You don't get much more materially wealthy than the king of Israel. But David understood something that too few politicians ever understand. You can only rule effectively if you have first endured affliction yourself. David had endured oppression from Saul and from the Philistines. And in the rebellion of Absalom and the traitor Ahithophel, David had been betrayed and afflicted by his own son. David had experienced oppression and affliction. And because of this, he was able to become a wise and faithful king. He understood that the the only way to glory is the way of the cross. And he understood that though he was the Lord's anointed, he was the Messiah, yet he was still dependent upon the Lord to rescue him from the gates of death. A lesson that our Lord Jesus embodied very much when he went to the cross and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had no other rescue but his own father. In verses 13 and 14, David contrasts the the gates of death with the gates of the daughter of Zion. There are two ways, the way of death and the way of life. And these two ways lead to two gates, the gates of death and the gates of the daughter of Zion. And so you can see the, the gates of the daughter of Zion here, it's not just referring to the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't just mean, whew, I didn't die, I get to go home. No, he sees his restoration to the throne in Jerusalem as the picture and pattern of how God relates to the afflicted. What God does for his Messiah, his anointed king, is what he will do for all his people. And just if you look at verses 13 to 18, you can see how the pattern plays itself out. David pleads with God to be gracious to him so that he may rejoice in God's salvation. Then he points out that the Lord executes judgment on the wicked. They are snared in their own traps, verses 15 and 16. And then he extends the image beyond himself and his foes to include the broader pattern of the wicked nations that forget God and the needy who shall not always be forgotten by God. If God is faithful to David and his heirs, then God will be faithful to all Israel and indeed to all the earth. If God has raised Jesus from the dead, then God will raise you up. But that faithfulness will mean righteous judgment so those who lay snares for others will fall into their own traps. And that's verses 15 and 16. God does not lay snares for the innocent. Rather, he uses the wicked's own snares in order to judge them. I once had a chance to see this tragically in many ways, right up front. 
A man sought to unjustly deprive other men of their livelihood. But the way he went about his efforts resulted in him losing his own job. I mean, ironically, he thought he was being obedient to God in all of this. That was the tragic part. He thought, I'm just doing what Scripture says. Oh, but he was wrong about what Scripture says. And because he was wrong about what Scripture said, he wound up trying to deprive other men of their livelihood. And the result was, because he, because of how that, I mean, the whole way it worked, he wound up losing his own job. And that's the way God's judgment works. He, he executes judgment by ensnaring the wicked in the work of their own hands. Think of Pharaoh, who ordered that all the male children of Israel be killed. What was the result? His own firstborn son died, together with the firstborn of unbelieving Egypt. It's always worth remembering, any Egyptian who put the blood of the Passover lamb on their lintel would have been saved. So, and actually we hear, we hear in, the, in the story of the Exodus of how there, uh, there was a mixed multitude who went up with Israel. There were, there were apparently a lot of people who, after a bunch of those plagues, were like, hey, your God seems to be the true God, and so we're with you guys. Uh, it's also worth noting, any Israelite who failed to put blood on their doorpost, their firstborn died. It wasn't about, oh, the Israelites get special exemption. No. Those who believe the Lord get the special exemption. Those who don't believe perish. Any wicked person who repents and believes the gospel will be saved. Those among the church who apostatize and act like the wicked will be condemned. Think about how, God, how God's judgment works. And actually, for parents, I'd encourage you to think about how can you imitate that in your own way, in your, in your discipline for your children? How does, in this, are there times, I, I, sometimes I've been like, I can't figure out how to do this, but sometimes you can help them see it's their own trap that they have laid for their own feet. And seeing how the, the sort of the, the judgment fits the crime comes in handy. I, there, once was a, there once was a child who lied terribly, and his, his parents told him that, that because of that they would not believe a word he said, but would need verification for every statement he made for the next week. Within a couple of days, he was a puddle. I just want you to believe me. Yeah, I'm not going to say that that kid never lied again, but he became quite trustworthy. I mean, sort of seeing, seeing how the, when the punishment fits the crime, there's a way in which that can be... Uh, it's, it, and seeing how God's sort of poetic justice works out can be useful in helping our own children think about these things. Well, verses 17 and 18 then return to the theme of forgetting and remembering. The wicked shall return to Sheol. And return might seem like an odd... It's like, well, they never were there before. But it's, it's the same word, turn, that we keep seeing over and over again in these early psalms. The wicked shall turn to Sheol. That's where they're, that's where they're going. Their, their path is not leading to God. Their path is leading to Sheol. That's the direction they, will, they are turning. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Even the way that's worded reminds us that uh, when you're afflicted, when you're in trouble, do you feel like God's forgotten you? Yeah. And when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when when it says that the needy shall not always be forgotten, that does suggest that there are times when it sure feels like you've been forgotten. That's what happens. But God will remember you. The hope of the poor, the hope of the afflicted will not perish. The wicked will perish. The hope of the poor will not perish. The hope of the poor, the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, will be raised from the dead, remembered by the Father, and exalted to his right hand. And so, David says, Arise, O Lord. There's that call again that we saw in Psalms 3 and 7. Just like Moses did every time the ark set out from the camp. Arise, O Lord. And when God arises, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Here at the end of Psalm 9, or perhaps in the middle of Psalm 9-10, the psalmist makes a sharp contrast between man and Yahweh. Man has been in rebellion against the Lord ever since Genesis 3. And just as Psalm 8 had said, What is man that you care for him? What is man? The problem with the nations is they are but men. But when Jesus comes in our flesh, when Jesus comes and triumphs over sin and death through his own resurrection, this is what brings life to the dead. And this is where as as we walk before God, remembering that He is the one who has sent His Son. He's the one who sent Jesus. And that's where if if you've been wavering, if you've been think, wondering, sort of, what's the point of all this? Why, why do I follow Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus is the one who has triumphed over death. He is the one who has been raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who will judge the nations and make all things right. And so I would urge you, put your hope and your trust firmly in him because he is the only one who can bring things to rights. So let's pray. Oh Lord God, you are the hope of the poor because you raised up your beloved son and seated him at your right hand in glory. You have remembered him and delivered him. And because you have remembered and delivered him, you have set your love on us and you have you have delivered us from the bonds of sin and death. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to remember these things. Help us to believe, to repent and to turn from our sin, to repent and to turn to Jesus. Lord, have mercy on us. And help us by the the grace of your Holy Spirit that we might walk humbly before you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.